the word resilient, I think, is telling someone to be strong instead of beefing up the systems that are failing them. But it's also like, oh, you know what? You're good. You're resilient. You're resourceful. I don't have to worry about you. Like, I don't have to check in. I I know you've got this. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Stephanie Land, author of Class, a memoir of motherhood, hunger, and higher education. Stephanie's first memoir, Made, was centered on her life as a working mother, as a house cleaner, but it was also the story about her dreams. In the immensely readable class, Stephanie takes us with her as she pursues those dreams, as she finishes college, facing barriers at every turn, including a Byzantine loan system, not having enough money for food, navigating the judgments of professors and fellow students, Stephanie finds a way to survive once again. Stephanie Land is an American author and activist whose writing focuses on social and economic justice, as well as parenting under the poverty line. Her debut book, Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and A Mother's Will to Survive, was a New York Times bestseller and was adapted into a limited series on Netflix. Stephanie's work has been featured in numerous outlets, and she is a frequent speaker at colleges and national advocacy organizations. Class is her second book. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. Welcome back to The Right Question. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's really great to be here. I want to begin by congratulating you on the publication of your second memoir, Class. And I want to congratulate you on the success of Made, uh, your first memoir that was not only a New York Times bestseller, but it also became the inspiration for a Netflix series. Congratulations. Thank you. That's enormous. Yeah. What does the success of Made and this initial reception of class mean that your stories have been so embraced by the public in the way that they have and will probably continue to be? Boy, what does it all mean? <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know yet. I mean, I feel like I'm very much still in the thick of it. Like, I, it's just, it's only been five years. Um, and I kind of went immediately from low-income housing to uh, traveling around New York City in a car, like, and everybody's asking me if I've had water. And and just, like, it was this really weird kind of startling experience to to get thrown into. And I've been going nonstop. Um, I, I work as a public speaker. I do a lot of events that are unpaid and, and are fall more into advocacy. And it was a little weird to like sit down and and write a book again uh just because so much of my job has become talking which um is nothing that I would have imagined for myself personally just because I'm so introverted so when I when it came time to write class last summer um uh, I thought you know I I have the platform, I have kind of the clout to be a little bit different in this book and and to to be angry. So i'm I'm experimenting, I guess, with this story. And um, 
I'm interested to see what the reaction is going to be from the general public. Um, so far, it's been pretty good, but it'll it'll be interesting. You called yourself an introvert, and in class, you write when talking about a storytelling class with Deborah Erling that you never really considered the possibility of performance or, in in some respects, public speaking a part of being a writer. I'm wondering. How was that transition for you? Was it kind of a shock to the system? Was it an easy transition? Did you fall into that role pretty easily? Or, or has it taken some time to kind of get used to that that part of your writing life? I'm glad you picked up on that line. Because so, <laughs> I, I definitely put that in there. Because I do remember thinking that. And and now it's just almost ironic that that's my job. Um, I, I don't know if I will ever fully get used to it. Um, It is something that is very hard on me. It's very hard on my mental health. It's hard on my family because I'm traveling all the time. It it is something that I hope to not be my my main day job uh, at some point in my life. So, um, I mean, right now it's like, get it while the getting's good, but, you know, Eventually, I would like to settle down and and not travel for work all the time. It's really hard. Um, I I'm good at it. I I don't know how. I'm very rehearsed, maybe because uh, I've I've done. I think events are almost at around a hundred. Um, so I or more. I don't know. I I honestly don't know. Um, <laughs> so it's it's been it's been a thing. You write in class, which sees you struggling to work a part-time job on top of getting your bachelor's degree and finding childcare for your six-year-old that, quote, I got the sense that not only did work have the greatest value, but that I too only had value if I was working. You're talking about work and the the strain that the work you do now on top of writing has on your body. And both this book, Class, and your first book made center your struggle to find and maintain work to keep your daughter clothed and fed and happy. And I'm wondering how you view work now, how that, how you view that labor now, how you think about it in relationship to or in balance with your family life. It sounds like maybe it has both changed and not. Yeah. Um, I, so during the pandemic, um, I, I signed the contract for class right before the pandemic started. Um, and then I, proceeded to, you know, experience the pandemic like everybody else. But um, I also had four pregnancy losses that year. And I I could not produce. I could not write. And um, and that, that really messed with me um, because I wrote made in this tiny little dark apartment in low-income housing. I was a single mom. And then I'm writing about a time that was the hardest year of my life. And, and I wrote so much, like I printed out everything that I wrote that year. And the stack was like two inches of of paper. And, and I, I really struggled with a lot of negative self-talk of, of just like, like, look at you, you're, you're in a, a much more privileged place. You have a house, you have a spouse, you have, you know, um, a way better laptop, like, you know, like all of this stuff. And, and I, I could not write. And, and I, I realized that I still very fundamentally 
only saw myself as having value if I was actively able to work. And and I, I think I've just come to recognize that that is just a part of me now because a part of the book of class and part of the right reason why I chose that year in particular is because I, I was kicked off of food stamps because I couldn't fulfill the work requirement as a full-time student. Um, I learned recently that that has slightly changed. There's now an exemption for single parents who are full-time college students. The age has gone up from six to age 12. So I, I that wouldn't have happened now. Um, I still would have needed childcare, and I still would have really struggled with that. But the the part where I I am working as hard as I possibly can, and I get this letter in the mail that says, "None of that matters. Sorry, you can't eat." And it's just it it really messed with me, and I. I probably will never know just how much that defined me, but I, I don't know if there there will ever be a way for me to just like not work. You know, I have anxiety, but it's also like this just need to be contributing in society to like to to have a place to have value. I mean, we we assign so much dignity to our jobs and just as a society. And and I I think that's really horrible because every job, every type of work is important um, to the, your community, especially. And and I yeah, I I think that part of the government assistance programs, um, the the work requirements, um, where you have to work 20 hours a week in order to get food and food stamps. Like it comes out to be a little bit over a dollar a person per meal per day. And like, that's the average. And, and so it's, uh, it's really messed up. And, and it, it really messed me up. Well, it sounds too that, you know, you're talking about this value that society places on work and the labor and that place in, in our communities. But you're also coming from a background of extreme instability. And so those things are probably working in tandem to sort of increase your anxiety about not working. If you're not working, you're not making money, you're not working towards stability. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of that is extremely purposeful. I think um, I think America is in a, a caste system. You know, I, I think that there there is a lot of purpose in in keeping a class of society who is desperate for work um and and they're they're sick they're poor they they don't have access to education all other work is possible because we have this workforce who cleans up after us and serves us and takes care of our kids and their whole purpose, their whole job is to make our lives easier. And and without that, you know, everything would fall apart, but nobody wants to do those jobs. And so they have to keep this whole entire low-wage population desperate for jobs. And and so I I was there for, for a long time. And you you write in class about 
a particular paranoia and the fear of getting caught spending what little money you're making through government assistance on something, quote unquote, frivolous. Talk about that paranoia or that fear, how it guided your decision making in this part of your life that these books, both made and class, are speaking about. Well, I think, you know, as far as writing the books, there are some things that I include in the books that I know that people are going to get mad about. In in Made, I bought myself a ring with a diamond on it, and it was 200 bucks. And uh, I had a conversation with my friend who was, who was kind of ghost reading the book before I handed in the manuscript. And, and we had a we had a talk about like whether or not to include that. And, and I remember saying like, oh, well, I got to give them something to get mad about. And, and they did. Uh, and I'm saying they, like the people who leave bad reviews on Amazon and Goodreads, like, um, and just for no reason, it seems like, I don't know why. Um, and it's just this whole general consensus maybe of, of poor people cannot have nice things. And so I've been writing about being poor and, and being on food stamps for um, six or seven years at this point. And I am always bombarded with this attitude of if you're poor, then you should eat rice and beans. If you're poor, then you should put all of your money into whatever you need in order to survive. You cannot have any fun. You cannot have a smartphone. You cannot, you know, uh, buy candy with your food stamps. Like it, it goes on and on. And, and so with class, it was kind of time to write about a lot of that. Uh, there's, there's a woman on Goodreads who is very upset that my kid ate so much ice cream. Um, there's, um, there's a lot of people who are upset that I, I went out and, and I acted like a college student basically. And I went out and I, I was sexually active and I was really nervous to include that just because of the person that I am, but also because I knew that that is not just for a poor person, but for a mother and especially for a single mom, you know, going out and dating and 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 having sexual relationships with people. And I say people as in multiple people because that happens. Like I knew that that was going to be like it's supposed to be the ultimate nice thing. And and hopefully it is. And and so I I don't know. That was kind of part of the the experiment of just like, what are people going to do with this? Let's find out. Um, my editor told me, um, because I was really nervous about writing about my private life uh, in that way. Uh, I mean, the whole book is my private life. But um, and and she told me um, she was very encouraging um, to include, you know, the relationships the yeah the yeah. sex scenes. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> i can't even say it uh and like and she said um a woman enjoying her body is the most dangerous thing in the world and and that that really that really struck me um that it's it's not just about a poor single mom doing that it's about just women in general i mean the the last year has been hell 
And and we have politicians basically telling us that not only does our body not belong to us, but we're not even supposed to go out and enjoy ourselves. And and so it's yeah, I mean I I I thought it was important to include. It's hard for me to even talk about it, but it's um I'm blushing right now, I bet. Um and so it's I I I think it's maybe like the most real thing I've ever written. Um, I hope I did a good job, <laughs> but like it's it, it was just important to me because I we expect single moms to be angelic and 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 the yeah. idea that there's no room for or need for joy and that's how I read the ice cream and the sex that there is room and there has to be room for joy in these in these moments. Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially for my daughter. She absolutely needs to go to the Nutcracker and enjoy herself and and be able to have moments of not just being a regular kid like the rest of her peers, but having fun and and having a treat and and having a moment of of like you said, pure joy. And and I, I I deserve that too. I mean, everybody does, but when it's overwhelmingly apparent that a lot of society thinks that you should not deserve that, and you do not deserve that, it's, it's really hard to actually enjoy yourself. You're listening to a conversation with memoirist Stephanie Land. I'm Lauren Korn. This episode of The Right Question is supported by Montana Book Company, located in downtown Helena since 1978, offering new books for all ages, vinyl records, and community activism. Delivering in Helena and shipping online at mtbookco.com. Stephanie, I'm hoping you might read something from class. I haven't read this since I recorded the audiobook, so... Since Amelia had arrived, our lives had been relentless. I knew that some people lauded us as an example of true resilience. It seemed to me that these people viewed living below the poverty line as a kind of strength training program. Most were likely unaware of how all-encompassing it was for us. They didn't see their participation in how we were trained. But any time I talked about or posted on Facebook that I was going through a hard time, all the comments were some variation of, you got this. With every hardship we endured, and in turn every traumatic incident that I had to relay in order to give someone a heads up that my kid needed trauma-informed care, what I heard most as a response was that I should be proud for getting through it. I was a survivor. I was resilient. People would tell me children are resilient when I worried about Amelia, but I never saw how that could be true. Children didn't have the communication skills or self-awareness to talk to adults about how stressful their lives felt, or that they couldn't in fact handle it. That lack of ability, that silence, seemed to be confused with resilience. This resilience might have been part of what made my writing unique, but it still bothered me that it was part of my life. Resilience as a virtue is assigned, especially to marginalized groups, when systemic structures have created countless invisible barriers to living what the privileged consider a normal life. 
Every time I wanted to cry from the crushing hopelessness that life seemed to bring, something inside of me hissed, you must not allow yourself to fall apart. At first I thought this signified bravery on my part, or that it meant I was a good parent in that I didn't want my kid to worry as much as I did about keeping us fed, clothed, and sheltered. Then I started to realize that I had no choice in the matter. I didn't have the privilege to feel. So I, this whole section, like I called it the resilient soapbox, um, it's not a virtue. It is, it is just people telling you this is what we're offering you. This is what you have to work 20 hours a week for, and we'll give you this small amount. And, and you've got to be good with that. Because if you complain, we're just going to lose your paperwork or, or not want to work with you. Or, you know, I, I was trained to be very small and, and like this Oliver Twist type of person, because that's who, you know, the quote unquote deserving poor is. And you put it next to the word survivor. And I'm sure, Stephanie, that with the publication of Made first and then the Netflix series and now Class, that the word resilient or resilience and survivor and survival, those words are probably, I'm going to use the word leveled at you, but I'm sure a lot of people um, describe your story and have, have spoken to and about you with those words. You write a little bit later um, that relentless might be the better word. Compare compare those words for me. I guess I'm I'm struggling to find a specific question, but I would really love to talk more about claiming a word because you you have been through something. There is something there, and yet to resist the word survivor or resilient or resilience, and to in, instead be stubborn or relentless. Um, what are the the emotions that are going on there? I, I don't know if it's something that I necessarily identify with. Um, when I was really struggling to to write this book, um, because it sounds kind of weird, but I I thought like being more successful and and living a more privileged life has made had made me soft in some way because I wasn't like fighting tooth and nail for everything all the time. And I had a lot of conversations with my therapist about it and just saying like, I'm not a badass anymore. Like I'm not out there like doing all of this stuff and, and just like cleaning houses and just like doing all of this gritty, really physical, um, by the skin of my teeth type of life anymore. And, and I felt like that was who I was because it had been who I was for so long. And, you know, the word survivor amongst other survivors, that's all you need to say. And, and they know. And so I meet a lot of people in my job and people will come up to me and say, I'm a survivor too. And, and it's just, it's just this moment of like, oh, okay. And and you just know, like, we have a very huge part of us in common. And and so I think there are words like that that do have some usefulness. But with the word resilient, I think, is used to mm, – I, I feel like people will use that word in a way that is – kind of what I tried to talk about in the book of just like 
telling someone to be strong instead of beefing up the systems that are failing them. But it's also like, oh, you know what? You're good. You're resilient. You're resourceful. I don't have to worry about you. Like, I don't have to check in. I, I know you've got this. You're it's good. It's like a negation of responsibility or support. Like, I will call you resilient and know that you'll be okay and you don't need anything more from me than that. Yeah. But the, re- the relentless word I, I still am very fond of. I actually wanted to title this book Relentless, but it it had too many syllables. Um I'm just and saying. class is so good. It's I know. On so it's many like, like I wanted relentless to be in the subtitle, but then it was mm. like class and then relentless and then just like whatever. Uh, the word relentless just became kind of like a smirky fu to feedback that I had gotten from a f- professor because she called my writing relentless, and I was just like, you know what. I am absolutely relentless um, in like a good way. And so I I still really like that word. Because the subtitle of this book, Class, is a memoir of motherhood, hunger, and higher education. And you write in your acknowledgments that your senior year as an undergraduate student was your hungriest year. And you went without a lot during that year in order to feed your hunger for a college degree, um, in order to feed your child's hunger, um, to make sure that she was cared for um, first and foremost. And then you earned your degree. You've written two books. What are you hungry for now? Oh, that is a good question. (laughs) Um, What am I hungry for now? You know, I think every writer wants this kind of like fabled book of essays, you know, like I, I wanted the book of essays from the beginning, like, because to me that that's not only my favorite type of writing, that's uh, my favorite type of writing to read. Um, And, and so I'm, I'm still secretly holding on to that dream of, of publishing a book of essays. Um, Stephanie, I want to make sure that I give you the space to say something to our listeners that maybe we haven't yet talked about. If we haven't yet talked about something and you're like, no, I want our listeners to know this about this book, I want to give you that space now. Is there anything that we haven't covered yet? Since the book takes place in Missoula and contains characters that I would possibly run into at the grocery store, and I still live here in Missoula, like... I I not only wanted to write very warmly about the people who were warm to me, but I also wanted to capture a moment in time of of this community and and how beautiful it was at that time and just how you just kind of had this whole collective population of people who worked and lived here and they they could do both of those things at the same time and be relatively okay. I don't know. It was just, it was a really fond memory of mine. We could talk so long about this book. There's so much here and so much here that we didn't talk about, but I so enjoyed my reading experience of class. I felt like you were with me the entire time. So thank you for class. Thank you for made, And thank you for being here today. Thank you. It's always so good to talk to you. And, and thank you for your support over the years and and yeah thanks for having me i i love 
Love being on this program. I should write a whole other That was memoirist Stephanie Land, author of Class, a memoir of motherhood, hunger, and higher education. Out now from Atria and One Signal Publishers, imprints of Simon & Schuster. Look for more information about Stephanie at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Flordis. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.